As U.S. retail interests found fertile manufacturing soil in China and the Far East, maritime shipping became more and more essential to American economic interests. The cash cow also created a maritime scenario where just 10 carriers occupy more than 80% of the market. Through the pandemic, ocean shipping rates hit amazing highs, causing American government interests to look at regulating the industry, including the idea of breaking up alliances. The Ocean Shipping Reform Act became one of several legislative acts and interests targeting maritime shipping in trying to change the industry. In the meantime, port readiness and infrastructure may have been neglected in trying to keep up with the times. So what are U.S. interests when it comes to regulating the maritime industry? We take a look next on Freight Waves Presents. Welcome to Freight Waves Presents. I'm Bill Priestley. For the past several years, more and more criticism has come to the maritime industry from the formation of alliances, which brought about talk of cartels to legislation that gives the Federal Maritime Commission more teeth in protecting you outside U.S. interests. Outside regulations hitting the industry include the implementation of IMO 2020 and 2023, not to mention New Energy recently criticizing the Jones Act. Take a look at this chart, which shows nothing new of what we've experienced over the course of the last several years. Inbound TEUs nearly increasing by 50% over the course of the pandemic, as economic stimulus money created a freight bubble we haven't seen for some time, a bubble that seems to be bursting with tremendous effect in the rail industry. With new pressures this year, including restricted use of the Panama Canal and labor interests on the West Coast just recently resolved, no day is like the next in an industry that used to be more than predictable. Joining us to sort out these attitudes and put a direction on where these intentions are headed are three people that make it their job to follow these trends. Lauren Began, the Maritime Professor, Head of School of Strategies in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Salvador Congregano, Associate Professor of History at Campbell University in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. And John McCown, Senior, senior Fellow for the Center of International Maritime Security coming to us from New York. Thanks so much for joining us here, Lauren and John. Uh, Lauren, let me start with you. Obviously, I ran off a bunch of different ideas in terms of what's going on with uh, the U.S. government and the U.S. interests in terms of the maritime industry there. Take your pick. Right now, what is kind of your, what's your attention on right now in terms of where this industry is with regard to how American interests are being filtered through it? Sure. I, you know, I think we're still going through systematically. We've talked about this many times before, but I think we're still systematically cleaning up all of the congestion problems that were happening during COVID. Um, OSRA 22, we just passed the one-year mark since it was signed. There were a few things that were supposed to be done by the one-year mark, but we still see the Federal Maritime Commission going through their tick list of what they're getting done, what they still need to clean up. We're seeing both case laws, some pretty notable case law come through. Um, but we're also seeing the rulemakings continue. And that's one of the things that I think we've seen the industry, is particularly shippers, attach to and, and find very helpful in the implementation of this OSRA Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 2022. John, what do you think? What are you looking at? What are you seeing as kind of the thing that's catching your eye in terms of the maritime industry as it stands right now? Well, Bill, it's been a, an amazing roller coaster the past couple of years. Um, uh, you know, nobody I think would have thought that uh, what did occur uh, actually occurred. Uh, and so first the industry, um, uh, was, was, was kind of hit and then kind of a combination of, 
uh, a spike in demand and and some constraints sent uh, pricing uh, to unprecedented levels. We're we're kind of coming off that. that. Um, uh, so I think it's 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 really too early to tell. I I, I think that what has happened is is understandable. Um, I take a little bit different view. I think one of the things that is is needed uh, before really anything else is is more uh, more b- better basic information. And and by that I mean information that's readily available to the shipping public on um, you know actual overall aggregate rates by different freight lanes. Um, uh, information that uh, you know that they can go to and, and see because I think a lot of uh, some of the issues that occurred over the past couple of years uh, frankly relate uh, directly to the opacity in the container shipping industry. So I think uh, uh, kind of almost a foundational thing that is needed is is much better information on 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 where the industry has been, both in terms of basic things like uh, actual net income. Uh, and what has been done with 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 rates? Um, the uh, spot rates, which I've uh, developed some real concerns about their credibility and their prevalence, um, have go- gotten all the attention. But the really more meaningful thing is what is going on with overall aggregate rates. So that's kind of what I um, think needs to be done first. Lauren, let me come back to you just on that point. We've talked about opacity and transparency in terms of how rates especially, and then also the fact that you have 10 carriers that control a vast majority of the market, which doesn't seem to lend itself to any kind of transparency given the competition between those carriers. What do you look at it in terms of transparency as you see that as a problem that needs to be solved in the, and if not immediate, not too distant future? Well, so this is a paper-based industry, right? So this is an industry that is old as time. So, of course, it's going to take a little bit of time for the the industry to modernize, to digitize. And that's what we kind of see happening right now. We see kind of a, a almost like a growth spurt, but also growing pains in the industry trying to get to that visibility side of things. Uh, like I said, it really is a paper-based industry. We're seeing now, just now, starting to go to electronic bills of lading, where otherwise it really, I mean, current practice is PDF scans of, of bills of lading. And whoever holds the bill of lading and the origin, the, the originality of that bill of lading is, is kind of the ownership of the goods. It gets pretty complicated. And we just haven't made those, I mean, sometimes seemingly easy transitions. We're, we're in the midst of that now. I think there was a spotlight shown on the, the maritime shipping, the global shipping industry over the past few years, which has been great, but we're also catching up. We're also trying to make sure that everything is there. So initiatives like like Commissioner Carl Bensel's Maritime Transportation Data Initiative is is a great first start, right? It starts the conversation. It starts to dive into some of those more complicated questions, and it really kind of helps the industry get their head around, what does this mean to go digital or electronic, right? I mean, when, when we were pre-email, we didn't quite know what it meant to be sending emails. Now we can't think of a world without it. I, I equate it to the same type of thing. And, you know, it's not just about the electronic platforms on top, but it's also about the standards underneath and making sure that everybody's speaking the same language. When we send an email, if I have Gmail and somebody else has Yahoo, I don't think about how it gets there. I just assume that it gets there. That's the piece that we really need to build into this visibility of the information is making sure that the data is good data in that everybody understands what that data point means. Because as we know right now, detention, demerge, per diem, 
I mean, they all are quacking like a duck, but we're calling them different things. So we need to make sure that we have that that consistency too. John, let me come back to you in just a second. We've got Sal Mercogliano here with us as well. And Sal, let me just open up the first question I gave to to Lauren and to John. In other words, there's a lot of different uh, different aspects of the right now the maritime industry. Uh, again, talking about Osra, talking about possibly breaking up um, uh, alliances, uh, more energy on the Jones Act. What is it right now within maritime that is kind of catching your eye the most? Well, I think it's really the visibility that maritime has, not just within a very confined transportation sector, but across the board. As Lauren and John both talked about very eloquently, we're seeing this in a way that I would argue we really haven't seen before. I mean, you get representation across Congress right now with the the cognizance that, listen, what happens in the supply chain, the maritime supply chain, is really important on Main Street of my small town that I live in. And I think that is driving so much more attention to this issue. And again, the updating of this issue. You know, I wouldn't think that an ILWU PMA labor strike or very intense negotiation would get as much publicity as it does, but everyone realizes that and how really thin the margins are in our transportation network that we can only suffer really an expansion, either one or 2% either way. And then you start gumming up the works. John, uh, we've talked a little bit about this leading up to this discussion, but uh, you know, one of the things that you brought up is the fact that there's been a lot of uh, attention given to Osra, a lot of attention given to things that need to be corrected, but perhaps port readiness may not necessarily be it or may be on the back burner uh, as far as some of these initiatives that might need to be. What do you see as the most important aspect of it? Granted, this was seen, of course, when you had the uh, the, uh, the the Bay of San Pedro, of course, uh, f- filled with over 100 ships a year and a half ago or so. And uh, now, as of the the last uh, check that I've got here, the Port of L.A. is saying just 14 ships out there. But if that were to happen again, put yourself in a very difficult situation. How do you look at port readiness as something that really needs to be addressed? Well, Bill, that's a, that's a real concern of mine. Um, you know, we're kind of past the uh, the problem that we had, but but I think what uh, what this problem told us there was a spike in volume, but. Um, what it, what it really told us was that our container terminals are approaching capacity. What's amazing is that uh, today we're moving something on the order of four times as many inbound containers into the U.S. as we did in, in the mid-90s. And we're doing that really with the same container terminals, really only one new terminal. And we're doing that with incredible increases in productivity, but we're also doing it by stacking containers ever higher. So we're getting, if you look at pictures of most terminals, they're up to about six, uh, seven, seven containers high, which is really the maximum. So we've kind of gotten out of the immediate problem. But one thing for sure is container shipping inbound is going to continue to grow. It's not going to grow the last 10 years or 10 years from uh, 2010 to 2020, grew at about a 3.8% CAGR. It's not going to grow quite that much, but I peg it at about 2.7%. So that means we're going to have uh, twice as many inbound containers in 25 years, four times as many inbound containers in 50 years. And what we need to start focusing on is building new container terminals. Um, all of the digital initiatives that uh, Lauren mentioned are all excellent and, and will help. But, uh, you know, to see the sort of geometric additional volume, we need to be looking at uh, more, um, you know, actual terminals and um 
and, and that really can't be done uh, too soon because what uh, what would be a uh, unfortunate takeaway is that you know what has happened will never happen again. And in fact, uh, we can plot out when we're going to kind of reach back to the volume that we had during the pandemic. And we need to start dealing with that because we're keenly aware now of, of the economic impact on our supply chain. And then on top of that, there's a real national security angle. You know, God forbid mm -hmm. we find ourselves a, a need to project military power in there 100 ships off the coast of California. So it's something that really needs to be focused on. Lauren, as you look at this, obviously, you, if, if we run into a situation like we had there again with the, so many trips to San Pedro Bay and, and so forth, uh, obviously, from a detention demerge situation, you've got obviously more paperwork essentially to fill out there as far as that's concerned. How much of a danger right now do you think is port readiness in terms of making sure that everyone is on kind of the same page of seeing the growing numbers of volumes that we could see here? Sure. So, you know, I mean, the, the, the spike that we saw in 2021 was not only a spike in actual demand, but it was a spike in the size of goods that we were purchasing, right? Furniture was huge. Wood, lumber, timber, that those are all big, big purchases instead of just buying a small fan for the summertime. Um, and so this is something that actually Sal and I talk about quite a bit. In 2015, the Federal Maritime Commission actually released a report on congestion that ended up being kind of a play-by-play of what was happening in 2021. So this isn't a new issue. It just was exacerbated by that increased spike in demand in 2021. Whether we'll see another spike like 2021, probably not. Are we going to see another spike? For sure. Are these going to continue to be problems? Yes, they definitely are. So I think we just, as an industry, need to continue to build on the infrastructure. Infrastructure dollars need to go to the ports. They need to be part of the expansion of the container terminals, but then also the infrastructure associated with those container terminals. We need more drayage drivers and, and better servicing for the drayage community. We need better warehousing, more warehousing, maybe not even better, just more warehousing. That's what we need is just more of everything. And we need it to move faster. Um, you know, it, and that's going to be the give and take. And how much faster can we move it? And then when things start to gum up, do we have some contingency plans in place. I, I think it was 2015 with this congestion report kind of identified some of these things. 2021, we certainly saw them on a grand scale, right? I mean, that's what Sal was just talking about, hitting the pocketbooks of, of Main Street America. People paid attention. And I think we still have this unique opportunity where they're continuing to pay attention. So we need to, we need to really be spending that money toward the infrastructure. We can't have highways collapsing. We can't have ports getting gummed up. They are not warehouses. Ports are supposed to be transit zones. And that's exactly right. But the thing about the ports is they're also along the waterside. And who loves waterside? Everybody else. So that land is expensive. So we need to figure out if we can expand along the waterside, how do we bring it inland and how do we make that whole system work better? Sal, uh, John brought up, of course, uh, national security, obviously, is a major concern there as well. But past that situation and getting looking at volumes as they increase uh, in, within the next, uh, say, five to 10 years or so, as we look down the line, possibly looking at more infrastructure, how much of a problem is this on a federal level? And how much of this is maybe Sacramento telling LA Long Beach, look, we're going to give you some money, or it's going to be uh, Tallahassee telling Jacksonville or Atlanta telling Savannah. Uh, and, and not only with that, but also the problem that we saw this year, the fact that we're not going to see as much cargo come through the Panama Canal due to uh, the, the the fact that they didn't get enough rainfall for those Panamax uh, ships to get through. Well, I think you hit it on the head there in that 
we have a very divided nature when it comes to this, that ports are the, you know, the purview of either local municipalities or states, whereas the water is federal. And, you know, those scarce dollars, you know, one of the things that L.A. and Long Beach were making a big complaint about recently was, well, a lot of money went into East Coast and Gulf Coast ports to develop them. Well, that was being done because of the expansion of the Panama Canal and the new Panamax vessels that were coming through. And and I think, you know, again, it goes back to that idea of how do we handle commerce and transportation in the United States? By no means, I think the federal government should be in charge. That's That's not the answer here. But what we really want is some sort of kind of, okay, what's our plan? What's our oversight? What are we looking at? The report that Lauren mentioned, for example, was a great one, but it was done by the FMC in 2015, and that kind of didn't go anywhere. How do we want our port structured? And again, it goes back to a key issue. When you have a bridge go down on I-95 in Philadelphia, that impacts everybody. That's not just how to get to one side of Philadelphia or the other. That's commerce up and down the entire eastern seaboard. And what we really need to do is look at that. But the problem is we have so fragmented our transportation sector into road, rail, air, and sea that they really don't overlap. And even then, we still fragment it into commerce and then agriculture and the interior. And I think really what we need to do is look at a national strategy. What's our national strategy? What's our transportation strategy going to be? Are we going to operate on a four-corner strategy? We're going to have LA, Long Beach, Houston, Savannah, and New York, New Jersey. Or are we going to start really putting money into smaller ports and really diversify ourselves out and see how we change about this transportation system. Because what's going to happen is we're going to log jam it again. As John so aptly said, our system hasn't changed. We haven't really advanced and built new container terminals. We've just added to it and piled the containers higher. And that is a recipe of disaster. So, John, let's get to the kind of the meat of the argument. At least I want to spend the next uh, six minutes or so uh, on this and just to give me your take on on where all of this is headed. We've had legislation that's come through. We've had the FMC get kind of more teeth so they can have more of a, a grasp of what's going on uh, there as well. And more, uh, again, not necessarily part of our discussion right now, but more energy uh, against changing or, or repealing the Jones Act. Where is all of this headed eventually as you look five, 10 years down the line in terms of how much the federal and how much state governments are going to be getting involved in, in U.S. maritime operations? Well, I I think there's a clear uh, need for additional uh, uh, federal uh, role in planning. And, uh, you know, as Sal said, I I don't know you can have a a takeover, but but I think when first when you look at the um, uh, the port structure, my my own view from a economic emissions uh, congestion standpoint, any way you look at it, um, there's more cargo coming over the West Coast than should be coming over the West Coast. Um, It's more economic to get it, uh, you know, to the population centers, you know, three quarters of the mainland population are closer to the East coast. And from a cost standpoint, that's, that's been happening. That shift has been happening and it's going to continue to happen. Um, and, uh, you know, the, uh, not aside from the Panama canal issues, um, as the, the center of gravity of, of freight in Asia kind of moves, uh, a little westward, uh, you're going to see that freight come through the Suez canal. So that's going to happen, but I think that should frankly be encouraged by the federal government. I, I'm not, I don't necessarily believe that it, uh, in terms of federal support, it should be, you know, the same thing for everybody. Because if you look at it from any systematic standpoint, uh, we just likely have too much containers coming over the West Coast relative to the East Coast. And if we're serious about environment, for instance, um, 
you know, what's the easiest way to reduce 90% of the emissions of a, of a load coming from Asia to the, to say the New York area, it's simply to move it all water, not to move it, uh, over the West coast. And then a crane, uh, which is, uh, much more uh, fuel inefficient than a ship. So that's one thing from a national standpoint. And I, I, I think the problem quite, quite frankly, is very serious. And I think the metric that people ought to be looking at in terms of port capacity is reasonably 50 years from now, we're going to be looking at, uh, uh, four times as much cargo. To put that into perspective, that's 16 times um, as much cargo as moves into Los Angeles, our big port. Yeah. So I, I've been a big believer that one of the new things we need to look at is massive new inland ports that certainly have its challenge, but where, where all the containers coming on and off of a vessel are immediately moved to a giant inland port that is big enough where you can have a fully wheeled operation. That's gotcha. been really the the catalyst for, for problems. Um, as it relates to regulatory, um, I, I, I'm a, again, I'll go back to the point that I made the foundational point. I think the best thing that the FMC could do for the shipping public is to find a way to have data that is available in terms of aggregate pricing, you know, per, um, per lane, you know, the Asia America lane or, or, you know, have that readily available. And that, that data is already compiled by something called container create statistics. I think that that would be, um, uh, a, a wonderful, uh, uh, kind of, um, uh, 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 factual resource for shippers. And again, I think, uh, I go back to the, um, I think the, the spot rates were, 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 actively used by liner companies to convince people that the rates were really higher than they were actually. Um, so, so I think, you know, kind of, if you kind of look at the, the model of the SEC, they don't make a judgment on anything. They just make darn sure that all that information is there for somebody to look at. So that's what I think you need to have much more of. Yeah. Briefly, let me catch you up right there, just because we, I've got to got to keep going here. Um, Lauren, uh, looking at it, where do you see things in five to ten years? Uh, more regulation coming our way? Yeah, well, so so you know, I think going to some of John's points, the diversification of ports of entry is is going to be something that we will continue to see. I think people have woken up to, um, you know, even though you have the infrastructure of LA Long Beach, and there was some benefit to that. There's also benefit to reducing your risk by doing a diversification of ports of entry. Um, but as it relates to the national, the the kind of where the government ha- plays a role, I think I think Sal's right. Uh, you know, I don't think that the government necessarily should be doing a full takeover. Um, we are seeing intermodal freight office starting up at the Department of Transportation that came from the uh, National Defense Authorization Act a few years ago. Um, there's been a call for I mean, many, many, many years, national freight or national transportation strategy. I think people are starting to wake up to the interconnectivity of this supply chain ecosystem. Um, but, you know, I, I think the role from the federal government here is providing these guardrails. We've talked about that before. That's what the Federal Maritime Commission prefers to do with these rulemakings. They're allowing guardrails to kind of help filter in and, and keep contained so that you get the bad actors kind of not doing bad things, but then also allowing for the industry to take over them. And that's where I think we'll see we need to allow for the industry to have innovation. Right. That that's where the, the best ideas come from. And John knows this better than anybody. He worked with Malcolm McLean, who was a trucker who ended up changing the entire container shipping industry by creating the box that we know today. Absolutely. There, uh, Sal, you get the last word here. But also, do you see pushback if we see more regulation moving forward? 
I don't think you see as much pushback because I where you would normally see the pushback in is from the, the typical players. But as I said before, I think there's a lot of atypical players now in this. I think a lot more people see their interests impacted by this. And, and let's be clear. One of the things we want is regulations that don't hinder, but actually help. And I think the point that John made and Lauren has made repeatedly is the data issue. If we can get visibility and we can open this up so that we can have a more seamless play between all these different modes of transportation, which facilitates commerce, facilitates business, makes things better. If you're a drayage driver, I want to be able to get in and out of the port of LA, not once a day, but three times a day and really be able to be productive, which again would raise our productivity of our ports, which is what is really key right now. I think that's the issue that we need to be hammering as much as we can. We got to get this out of proprietary and local hands and make it more available to everyone on a national being. You know, I, I think that's where the issue really cements itself. Well, we're going to have to leave it right there. Thanks so very much for, to all three of you, Lauren Biggin, uh, Salvador Cagliano, and John McCown. It's been a wonderful discussion, and uh, we'll get, hopefully we'll get a chance to do this again sometime soon. And regardless of your political affiliation, the stresses on the maritime industry are bound to hit all of us in the bank account at some point, as Sal said. Are we headed towards more regulation and attempts to keep the lives of consumers consistent? Or are those ideas a pipe dream in terms of trying to keep 10 carriers under control? The U.S. government has said a lot with the initiatives of the Open Shipping Reform Act, but one thing is for sure, that is the pandemic showed the world there's a whole lot of gold to be found in the ocean shipping, and whoever has the most gold might still have the greatest say in determining the rules that everyone plays by. That's going to do it for this edition of Freight Waves Pres Presents. I'm Bill Priestley. 